comes from Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Annalisha. Good morning, everyone. It's great to see all of you. My name's Eric. I'm the pastor here at Trinity. Um, sometimes something happens during the week that just demands for the church to take a time out and to pray. Uh, many of you were aware of the events that happened in Charlottesville, Virginia. So before we get um, to the message this morning, I just want to take some time to pray. It's related to some of what we'll be talking about. It's a difficult issue for us to discern our response as followers of Jesus, and I think the best place for us to begin is to pray. So please, please pray with me. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we, we were disturbed, we were shocked by some of the images we saw this week in Virginia, in our, in our country. And as we sit in a lot of shock and figure out what does it mean for us to respond, we come to you. We know this is not a political issue, but the issues involved are central to your kingdom and, and to your heart. And it pains us and it grieves us deeply to see people made in your image declaring their own supremacy and superiority over others openly because of their race. And we know this is, is, is disgusting. This is a misuse of the gift of life, a trampling over the dignity and the glory of people made in your image, and we grieve that. We know your son Jesus died to unite all things in heaven and on earth to construct a new humanity, no longer broken by divisions, no longer divided by ethnicity. And we remember that reconciliation is at the heart of the gospel, that our Savior, that our Redeemer died to remove all that, to remove racial enmity and hostility, to break down the barriers and the walls that cause hate to fester and that oppress, was to unite Jew and Gentile, to create these, these communities of rec racial reconciliation so that the world would see it's not only, and it's hard work, and that it only, it takes repentance, it takes confession, and it's hard work, that these are pictures of the new creation. Help us to pursue that. Help us to be that. We give you thanks for, in your word, you give us glimpses of our eternal family, a family made up of every tribe and tongue and nation on this earth family made up of different colors and languages who look different but who are forever united in a new, a new race of people redeemed by your grace and by your suffering love. 
Lord, help us to see in this situation what truth and love demand from us. Help us to start by removing the logs in our own eyes. May we be very quick to confess and be convicted by our own lingering issues of racism or prejudice and bias. May we listen to those who are different than us. In some ways, it almost seems impossible for those mired in hate and, and bigotry like this to find repentance, but we know you do the impossible and we ask it. We ask for violence and aggression to be squelched and put out. We ask for a just and clear response to be given by our leaders in this country. We ask for the local community of Charlottesville that you would give them wisdom. And we pray for your church in Virginia, especially in Charlottesville. We think of our sister congregation, Trinity Presbyterian Church in Charlottesville. May they lead with truth and love. And Lord, as these things play out, help us to cling to you, to seek wisdom from you, to grieve where we need to grieve, and to continue to bring these things before your throne, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, um, we'll transition back to the text that we just heard Annalisha read, and we are in the middle of a sermon series this summer on the Sermon on the Mount. It's called Flourish. We've been looking at each of the passages in the Sermon on the Mount, each of Jesus' different teachings, and we've been looking at how we can place these within the larger theme of this sermon. And that theme is Jesus' vision for it, Jesus' invitation into the life of human flourishing, the blessed life according to Jesus. And it's not only for ourselves, not only for our own enjoyment and advantage, but it's a vision that forms us and makes us into people who live for the flourishing of others. So most of what Jesus says about this, as we've been tracking with him, as we've been going through this, is very unexpected. It's the opposite. It's flipped upside down of what we might expect of how we might describe the flourishing life. And as we've been going through, we've been kind of pushing back. I've been pushing back a little bit against Jesus and what he has to say. We say, Jesus, you really mean that we would love our enemies. Jesus, aren't you just a little bit too stringent on matters of sexuality? Is it really the, the mourning, the meek, and the merciful, and the persecuted who are blessed? How can that even be? And Jesus, why are you so black and white when it comes to materialism and wealth? So most of the time, we've been wrestling with Jesus like that. But today, we come to one of the teachings of Jesus where most people whether within the church or outside of the church, would say, yes, I have enthusiastic agreement with you, Jesus, on this point. This is definitely one of those things that's needed for a society to flourish, that there would be a lack of judgment, that we would not be a people of judgmentalism. In fact, if you look at verse 7-1 again, the topic sentence of this section it could be maybe Jesus' most popular teaching in our culture. Judge not, that you not be judged. We might rephrase it and say, don't judge or don't judge me, a very common and popular slogan. And if you do an internet search on this verse, you'll find it popping up in at least two lists. 
List one would be most popular or quoted Bible verses, and list two would be the most misused or misunderstood sayings of Jesus or teachings of Jesus. It's very popular in our culture's um, value. It, it connects with our culture's value of personal freedom, of our personal choices, of our right to express ourselves and pursue our fulfillment however we would please without the interference of other people. But as we use it in order to reinforce that value, often we're pulling it out of its context in this sermon. And it, you could say it's as you see on the internet, you search it out there, it's one of the most popular verses, probably one of the most taken out of context verses, but I would also say it might be one of the most ignored verses at the same time. And Steve alluded to this in his comments earlier. It's, we agree with this, but isn't it true that judging others is one of our favorite pastimes? I don't know if we have any Judge Judy fans out there. When I was growing up, we had Judge Wapner in the People's Court. And if you get sucked into watching one of these judge shows, and I have, why are we getting sucked in? It's because we love to judge other people and say, how stupid was that person? They are obviously guilty. Why would they ever do that? And we enjoy that. We judge people's appearance, their clothes, their cars. We judge other people's parenting. That's a fun one. We judge our political leaders. We judge people on social media, their vacations, their posts. We judge people's driving on the freeway all the time. And if you sit in a coffee shop and listen in to a conversation, maybe eavesdrop a little bit. I may have done this once or twice. What will you often hear? All kinds of judging happening. People judging their bosses, their friends who aren't with them, their family members. And if you set a rule and said, for the day, we're going to have a no judging day a lot of those conversations would be very silent, and people would be wondering, what are we going to talk about? So although it's popular, maybe one of the most loved verses, it's taken out of context. It's ignored. I would, I would argue, and I want to um, have us explore this today, that Matthew 7, 1 through 5, should be in our time, in our culture, it should be one of the most popular verses, one of the most rightly understood verses, and one of the verses that we need to most practice in our lives. I want to look at three things this morning. What is Jesus saying? Let's get that straight first. Why is it so important that we hear what Jesus is saying? And thirdly, how do we even put this into practice? So before we figure out how we apply what Jesus is saying into our own lives, we need to make sure we have it straight, that we understand what he is saying. As I said before, this is considered one of the most misinterpreted or misused passages in the Bible. At first, it seems pretty straightforward. Verse 1, judge not, lest you be judged. It seems at first that Jesus is giving really this absolute prohibition against judging other people. He says, judge not, period. And some have interpreted it this verse in this way over the years, that it is an absolute prohibition of any kind of judgment. Uh, the famous author, Leo Tolstoy, believed that this passage meant that there should be no judges, no justices, no judicial system that stands in between human beings. And in our culture, where we value tolerance, where we value inclusivism, when we hear judge not, what we hear Jesus saying is, don't ever make a statement 
about what is right or wrong or true or false beyond your personal belief or preference. Is that what Jesus is saying? We need to know what Jesus is not saying in order to see what he is saying. And the key word in this passage is the word judge. What does it mean to judge? The two major uses of this word in the original language, in the original Greek, correspond to our major uses in the English language. There's two senses of the word judge. The first sense, I'll call it sense one, is to discern. To discern, to make moral judgments, to discern or decide between what is right and wrong, what is true and what is false, what brings flourishing and what doesn't in the lives of ourselves and others. So it's knowing the difference between personal and social evil and good. That's sense one. Sense two is to condemn, to condemn a person, to look down upon people as a moral superior, to take the posture of God in other people's lives, and to pronounce judgment on other people. Those are the two senses of the word judge. Now, given those two senses, what Jesus is not saying, he can't be prohibiting all judging in sense one. Why not? Well, it's not consistent with the rest of his teaching. His teaching here in the Sermon on the Mount and the rest of Scripture, Jesus' sermon here, the whole theme of this sermon is about discerning between what is good and what is not. Between discerning, discerning what brings flourishing to human beings and what doesn't. Between discerning the right interpretation of truth and the Scriptures and the wrong interpretation of the Scriptures. And then in verse 6, if you skip down to verse 6, a difficult verse, a little jarring for us to hear Jesus say this. In verse 1, he says, don't judge anyone. And then in verse 6, he says, some people are dogs and pigs. And we're like, wow, that was a quick change. How did we get from verse 1 to verse 6? Now, we'll talk about that verse a little bit more later. But Jesus is saying we should learn to tell the difference in that verse um, when it comes to people's spiritual receptivity. So we have to make judgments. We have to be discerning about that. So Jesus can't mean don't discern and don't judge between right and wrong and good and evil in yourself and even more broadly in other people. That's the first thing Jesus is not saying. Secondly, as attractive as it can be to some of us to think, Jesus is saying never make judgments about anyone or any viewpoint Jesus can't mean that because it's humanly impossible and it's a self-defeating viewpoint. Let me explain. An example from this past week. Many of you may have seen all the firestorm of reaction that happened as a result of the now famous Google memo. You guys heard of that? If you missed it, a Google employee named, named James Damore he sent, I think it was a 15-page memo inside the company, and it leaked out. And in this memo was a critique about Google's, what he called their bias, their groupthink, and he had some very um, harsh things to say about their hiring practices. Very controversial content. We're not going to get into the content of the memo, but I want to make a point about the response to the memo. The first statement that Google made about this was this. We are an open and inclusive environment that accommodates multiple viewpoints. So if you were looking, what is Google saying and what are they saying about this? That was the first response they gave earlier 
in the week. Later in the week, that was, that was the first response. They were saying, who, don't judge. Who are we to judge? This guy can have his viewpoint. But later in the week, axed. He was fired. So the judgment was made. This guy's guilty. He's going to have to leave the company. Not helpful to us. The point is that Google was in attention as a, as a company, as a culture that highly values diversity of opinion and thought in absence of judgment, they came to a place where they realized there can't be absolute tolerance and a complete absolute absence of judgment. We all still have to make judgments. We are all intolerant of certain viewpoints, and that requires us to have discernment. So if we say, don't ever judge anyone except those who judge other people, then we are being inconsistent. It's a self-defeating statement and viewpoint. So it's not what Jesus is saying. It's not about never making any judgments. It's about how we are to judge. In summary, what Jesus is saying is this. Don't be a judgmental or condemning person. Don't be a judgmental or condemning person. Always take great care, great wisdom, great precaution when it comes to judging in sense one and making moral discernment judgments. And never take the place of the judge in sense two. You are not in the place of God in anybody's life, and you are not in the place to condemn another person. So that is what Jesus is saying and isn't saying, and we also have to see who he is saying this to. We want to turn this passage, many of us, into our basis for telling other people, don't judge me, don't judge we say that to mean, get out of my business, get off my back, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. But Jesus is not talking in this passage about how we handle other people's judgment of us. He's talking about how to handle our own judgmentalism. So this isn't about saying, don't judge me. This is Jesus saying, you don't judge. This passage isn't meant to be used against other people, but Jesus gave it to us to use it against ourselves. So that's point one. What is Jesus saying? Two, he tells us why we need to hear this. And he gives us two big reasons why it's important that we need to hear what he has to say. And I'm going to explain this or illustrate this by using two pictures. There are two effects to when we are mired in and practicing judgmentalism. The first effect is the boomerang effect. The second is the binocular effect. So first, the boomerang effect. Jesus says in verse 2, For, here's his reason, with the judgment you pronounced, that you pronounce, you will be judged. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And so he's asking us to consider, can we live up to the standard that we use to judge other people? And Jesus wants us to imagine that we are a judge sitting on our own bench and we receive a case and we read the charges and the evidence and we say, as we sit back, this is an easy case. Guilty as sin. Maximum verdict. And then we glance down at the name and we realize, oh wait, that's my name. Wait one, one second, we need to examine this case a little bit closer. Hold on. 
In Christianity Today, the latest um, issue, a psychologist, Christian psychologist, Mark McKinn, um, he talks about this tendency in, in all of us, in human beings, that psychologists have called the fundamental attribution error. Fundamental attribution error. And that's this. If something good happens to us, we tend to explain it internally. If something good happens to me, it's because I worked hard. It's my character. If something good happens to other people, we tend to explain it externally. They got lucky. Yeah, the, you know, every dog has its day. Circumstance. If I nail an exam, of course I nailed the exam because I am brilliant. But if somebody else gets a good grade on the exam, we say, yeah, it was an easy test. I mean, that was so easy. And the reverse happens too. If something bad happens to us, we blame outside circumstances. But if something bad happens to other people, we tend to explain it by saying, yeah, they had that one coming to them. Jesus says when we use that double standard in our relationships and we're a judgmental, condemning people, it will come back to haunt us like a boomerang. The boomerang we use against others will come back to us. This is not about karma. This is not about faith. This is God working into the moral fabric of the universe, the principle that we reap what we sow. Blessed are the merciful. They will be shown mercy. Those who forgive others are forgiven. God is the one who will take the boomerangs we throw at other people, and he'll find a way for that to come back to us, not to punish us, not in a vindictive way, but to convict us and to grow us. So that's for the first reason why we need to hear it, because there is a boomerang effect to judgmentalism. Secondly, there's a binocular effect. In verses 3 and 4, Jesus talks about this. When you look through the wrong side of binoculars, things are way over there, so tiny. It's the reverse effect. And then when you look, obviously, through the right side, everything's magnified and zoomed in. Jesus says we are so good at seeing the speck in our neighbor's eye. The word there, speck, is just a tiny piece of straw or wood. Maybe Jesus is using his experience as a carpenter. This is just a piece of sawdust in someone's eye. But we don't even notice that there is this log protruding out from our own eye. A log is like a, a piece of heavy timber, like a beam used in roof construction. We do this, don't we? When we look at the sins and the faults of others, and, and, and when we look at the sins and the faults of ourselves, we, we use the tiny end of the binoculars and we say, yes, I have some issues, but... It's just a little tiny speck. I can barely see it out there in the distance. And then when we see the sins and the faults and the failures of other people, we put the binoculars on the right side and we say, whoa, it's huge. I can't even see anything else. I just see this giant fault, your issues, your problems. Jesus says, turn the binoculars around. Or you will continue to be blind to your own sin, and you will be useless in helping other people identify and deal with their own issues that could be serious. The other thing that happens when we use binoculars to zoom in on the faults of other people is we just zero in on that fault, on that sin, on that issue. We miss the rest of the person. We miss the whole picture. 
We tend to miss how their story, their circumstances, whatever struggles they have going on in their lives might be contributing to that issue or that fault or that sin. Because the logs in our eyes tend to blind us of our own faults, I want to offer some ways for us to identify if we might just have a log in our own eyes. I want to share a few of these, and I'm going to share these as signs that we have an unremoved log. First would be gossip. If we enjoy complaining and talking about other people in a negative light, if we're constantly finding ourselves assigning fault and blame and criticism to others, and we're avoiding confrontation with people by talking about them behind their back, it's a sign we probably have a log in our eye. Second, would be what I call inner condemning. We might not outwardly speak about people through gossip, but the conversation is going on in our minds. We might have our favorite targets, people that we are looking for fault. We're always trying to see the picture that we have of them be reinforced. There they go again. They're messing up again. Isn't that person foolish? When are they going to get their act together? We find that happening in our, in our minds. It's a sign we have a log in our own eyes. Third, quick temper. A short fuse, our response doesn't match the wrongs done to us. Thirdly, it's difficult for us to compliment other people, to notice good things when other people do them. Fourth, it's easy for us. We find that we are eager to point out issues and faults in other people and in other groups that we disagree with. Next, we withhold forgiveness. We hold grudges. What that person has done to me is far worse than anything I have ever done to them. And last, when it comes to criticism and correction in our own lives, we can't handle it. We always have a defense. We always have an excuse. Criticism is something we can't handle. So Jesus says, this is why it's important. We tend to forget about the boomerang effect, and we tend to live in this binocular effect in our relationships. Which brings me to my third point. What can we do? How do we put this into practice? Jesus tells us how. It's pretty straightforward. When we see something wrong in others, when we notice something wrong in the world, he says, I have a very important first step for you to follow first. Get the log out of your own eye. And it is very simple, but it's very difficult. A newspaper um, many years ago, this was a British newspaper, asked famous authors the question and asked them to write in, what's wrong with the world today? And G.K. Chesterton wrote simply, dear sir, I am yours G.K. Chesterton. That's the right response, but it's so difficult for us to, to see and remove the log out of our own eye. And I want to talk about how it is that we can see it, how it is that we can remove it, and then the results. What happens when we do? It's kind of a comical picture because we ask, Jesus is forcing us to ask, how can you not see a log that is stuck and protruding out of your own eye. But Jesus 
helps us understand why we have such a hard time seeing this when he says, judgmentalism is another form of hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is a hiding behind a mask, behind a facade. Judgmentalism is always, uh, when you're judgmental and a condemning person, it's always a form of hiding. It's always a form of avoiding your own issues. Let me explain this like this. The, the scriptures say that every human being tends to bounce back and forth in our hearts between two different courtrooms. We have two courtrooms in our heart. There's door number one and door number two. Door number one says the court of self-condemnation. Door number two says the court of self-justification. In both, we're the judge. But in, in court number one, in the court of self-condemnation, that's when we are judging ourselves with perfectionism. We have this inner critic that just won't shut up. We're beating ourselves up all the time. There's no self-acceptance. And that is not a fun courtroom to be in, to sit in. And so we all try to find our way out. And so we move into the next courtroom, door number two, the courtroom of self-justification. We're still the judge in this courtroom. But in this courtroom, in order to feel better, we justify ourselves. And in order to do that, we have to lower the standard for ourselves. We have to greatly exaggerate our goodness and drastically minimize our sin, our faults, and our issues. And in that courtroom, although we make our fe ourselves feel better and more righteous, by hiding from guilt, by hiding from condemnation, and also by focusing on what's wrong with other people and condemning and judging other people. In that courtroom, we're relaxing the standards for ourselves with grace and mercy, but we are ramping up and tightening the standards for other people. The message of Christianity and the gospel is that there is another courtroom. There is a door number three. In the gospel... We learn that in this courtroom, God is judged, not us. The standard is not reduced. The standard is God's holiness. His call to love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to always love our neighbor as ourselves. In this courtroom, our sin is not minimized, but it's seen in all its ugliness and all its truth. It's worse than even in our court of self-condemnation. You might be saying, why would I go into that courtroom? Sounds even more difficult. We go into this courtroom and we realize that the judgment, the verdict against us, has been taken by another. At the cross, Jesus finally and fully took the judgment that we deserve upon himself. And so we are justified not by ourselves, but by faith and by union with him. So whenever we see sin in ourselves, we aren't condemned, and we don't have to hide it. We can admit it, and we can confess it, which is how we grow and how we mature and how we're set free from being judgmental people. That's how we can see it. That's how we can remove it, only in courtroom three, only in the courtroom where we know we are justified not by what we do. The verdict is not based on our performance. 
but on the life and the performance and the death of Jesus Christ for us. When we can live there, the results are incredible. And Jesus alludes to these results in this passage. I believe if we get this as Jesus intends for us to get this, we will experience, out of everything he says in the Sermon on the Mount, the most immediate impact in our relationships. We can experience ways that we bring flourishing and joy into our relationships. If you have, for example, a difficult situation where you're struggling with your kids, find yourself angry and your temper is flaring against them. If you're in a very difficult situation in your marriage, stuck in conflict. If you're in a difficult situation in your workplace or in your family relationships and they are broken, Jesus says we can move these relationships towards flourishing by first getting the log out of our own eye. Think about it like this. Who are the people who are best equipped to help other people deal with their issues and their problems and their sin? The answer, according to this text, is it's only those people who can say, before we talk about what's going on with you, I need to show you something. Here's what I found in my own eye. And you can point to a stack of logs and say, this is my this is my record of logs that have been removed from my own eye. Then and only then are we in a position to be able to help other people deal with their specs and their issues. People who have removed logs from their eyes are patient, compassionate, gracious, slow to question motives, not easily set off, very understanding of weakness and struggle. And in verse 6, what about the pigs and the dogs? Jesus says the other thing you'll be able to see clearly is when people are not even ready to be lovingly and graciously confronted with the truth about themselves and about God. A little bit later in this, in this um, text, in, in Matthew 7, in this chapter, Jesus is going to talk about the famous golden rule. Uh, treat others as the way that you would want to be treated. Uh, Peacemaker's Ministry, the author of the book, The Peacemaker and Resolving Everyday Conflict, Ken Sandy, is someone who I've observed in action mediating conflict and bringing peace in, in very difficult situations. And he talks about when we follow the golden rule, especially as we're getting the log out of our own eye first, there is almost always, never a guarantee, but almost always a golden result. And the golden result is People on the whole treat us in the same way we treat them. So if there's a relationship in your life where you feel like something is important and serious, it needs to be confronted. It needs to be dealt with. The best way to soften a person's heart, to open up their eyes to the, the speck that's in their eye, is to first take the log out of our own eye, to lead with repentance. So this week, if I could just give you an assignment, maybe you can identify one relationship like that in your life. And would you prayerfully ask God to reveal, is there a log that I need to reveal 
that you need to show me that I need to remove first? And go to that person where appropriate to confess and to ask for forgiveness. And with the authority of Jesus, I can almost guarantee the softening of that person's heart, that this golden result will follow. Today, we celebrate the Lord's Supper, and it gives us a picture, a reminder of both, of, of both past and present and even future. It points us to the past by pointing us back to that courtroom number three, that Jesus has fully, completely. He has said it is finished. The verdict against you has already been pronounced. For all time, you are forgiven. You are, in the eyes of God, innocent because of the body of Christ broken for you and the blood of Christ shed for you. It brings us to the present. If we're struggling with guilt and condemnation and judgmentalism, it pounds the truth of Romans 8.1 into our hearts. There is, right now, there is, in the present moment, no condemnation for all those who are in Christ Jesus. And it points us to the future. One day all logs and specks will be removed by the healing work of Jesus. And so this table is a time for us to be free to repent, to remove logs, and to rejoice and to be ready, more ready, to show grace and compassion to others. May God do that work in us as we come to his table. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, these are words that at first we find ourselves saying, yes, Amen, we agree with that. But on second look and second glance, we find ourselves convicted. We know that not one of us is exempt from having logs in our eyes. And I pray that this time of coming to your table would be a time where you help us see those things where you remove those things, where you grant us the gift of humility so that we could experience forgiveness, so that we could ask for forgiveness wherever we need to. Lord, rescue us, I pray, from being a community that would be infected by judgmentalism and condemnation. We know such a community cannot flourish, will not flourish, and will not help anyone See who you are. Save us from that. And help us to rejoice as we come forward, as we eat, and as we drink, knowing forever, forever, in your courtroom, we are declared innocent. We are declared forgiven because of the righteousness of your Son. We are grateful and we pray in his name. Amen.